0: Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel... Contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Thanks be to God for his holy word this morning. A question that I often hear from people is, why are there so many different Christian denominations? Uh, A wise friend of mine once said, it's because someone along the way didn't know how to read. Now, that is a simplistic response, which I believe was meant to be sarcastic, because it is much more complicated than that. There are many reasons why, and some of the reasons are good reasons, because it avoids a lot of infighting. Uh, The most obvious reason is that each denomination interprets various texts in the Bible differently. Whether they are texts that have to do with church government, how worship is to be conducted, how the Holy Spirit works in the believer today, which gifts of the Holy Spirit are still in operation today, so on and so forth. I'm not at all saying that these distinctions are unimportant. We are to stand for our distinctions. But there is one teaching of the Bible that unites all Christians across all denominational lines, even if it is outside of the Sunday service. And in fact, you can't be a Christian without it. And it is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Because on top of all the denominations out there, there are also many versions of Christianity. And not all versions of Christianity represent the original message that unites all Christians. Not all versions of Christianity teach the gospel. So not all versions of Christianity are truly Christian. And this is why doctrine is important. This is why teaching and learning is at the heart of the Christian life. Jesus was a teacher. That's why they called him Rabboni or Rabbi. His disciples would become teachers Jesus would give the church the gift of teachers to teach the generations that would come after the apostles. One of the early teachers of the church was the Apostle Paul. The word apostle can be translated as an ambassador or messenger. He was an ordained missionary evangelist sent to teach the gospel to the nations. And as he would evangelize, he would also plant churches. He planted a group of churches in southern Galatia around 45 to 47 AD. But soon after he left those churches, there were problems. False teachers had entered and influenced the Galatian churches. It's similar to when uh, Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. He said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. In this letter, Paul's greatest desire for the Galatian churches was that they know the true doctrine of the gospel and believe it. He didn't hold back when it came to teaching. He didn't say to himself, certain doctrines are for the elites, that is the teachers of the church, and other doctrines... Those doctrines are for the lay people. He didn't pass down the traditions of the church without teaching the members about them. Sunday morning wasn't just a weekly ritual. The mysteries of God had been revealed in the coming of Christ, and Paul regarded himself as a steward of those mysteries, which means he taught them to the church. Now, after he taught them, some things still remain mysterious, uh, like the Lord's Supper, for instance. But he still taught them, and he expected the church to receive his teaching as the word of God. So Paul, in this urgent letter, is warning the Galatian churches that they were abandoning their Christian profession by abandoning the gospel. We're going to notice the timing of their desertion of the gospel, their status before God, the type of gospel they were believing, and the destiny of those who teach this different gospel. So first, the timing of their desertion. It didn't take long for them to go astray, But before we notice the timing, we should take note of who he was speaking to. He was speaking to the Galatian churches. You're probably saying to yourself, why are the Galatians who lived over 2,000 years ago important for me to know about today? Well, because the Galatians were part of the universal church. These are our brothers and sisters. These churches were planted by Paul And it didn't take long for them to be led astray from Paul's teaching. So what does this teach us today? Well, first, it teaches us that members of the church are just as responsible to know the doctrines of the faith as the teachers are. And it teaches us that false teaching can begin from within the church. And history shows this has been the pattern. We know that the world lives and breathes false teaching every day, and it's often not hard to point it out. But Paul's main concern was for the church. God will judge the world. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul was concerned that the Galatian churches were being led astray by false teaching coming from within their fellowship. And so he expresses his shock. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. It doesn't take long for false teaching to take a stronghold on a congregation. All it takes are hard hearts, itching ears, ears not satisfied with sound doctrine, and a new teaching. And oftentimes this new teaching is Very popular. And it has resonation with people. Consider their situation. There were Jewish Christian legalists who were among the Galatian churches. And they were going around teaching that you needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. Now think of that appeal to the Jewish Christians in Galatia. That's what they grew up around. That's what they knew. And now, all of a sudden, Paul is saying, you don't need to be circumcised in order to be saved. This would have had an appeal to the people. And by Paul's tone, he must have received word that many of them have believed this new teaching. So secondly, what does he say about them and their status with God, if indeed they were believing this new teaching? He says, they are deserting him, that is God, who called them in the grace of Christ. They are deserting. That is, they are turning their backs on God. They are cutting themselves off and separating themselves from God. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people who call themselves Christians, but who are totally indifferent to what they believe. To them... Christianity is all about doing good to our neighbors. That's it. Christianity becomes works based. As long as you're a good person and you don't hurt anyone, it doesn't matter what you believe. As long as you believe in something good, it's the golden rule in the Good Samaritan theology cut off from the grace of God in the gospel, cut off from the redemptive core message of the Scriptures, which is Christ and His cross. But this is the exact opposite of what Paul says here. Then you have other Christians who say, I believe that I was saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. I don't trust in any of my good works or the works of the law to save me. But my other Christian friends... They feel they need this extra ceremony or ritual to save them. Who am I to say that that's wrong or that they're not believers? Well, because Paul says that's wrong. The scriptures tell us that's wrong. Now, to most people, morals are a good thing. And they are a good thing as a fruit of salvation. Good works are necessary fruits of salvation. But morals and good works do not save you. Paul is saying that the Galatian churches are deserting their God by adding works of the law to their salvation. Mind you, these works, i.e. circumcision, were once commanded by God, just like the rest of the law. But circumcision never saved anyone. Paul even said, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So that means Not all who were physically circumcised were saved. Circumcision was a sign and seal of the covenant, just like baptism. Baptism in itself doesn't save, it is a sign and seal of the covenant. But when you make someone's eternal destiny to be based on something other than the work of Christ, you are rejecting what God has said. And what Christ has done. So that means you would be deserting God altogether. Now This is what we call apostasy. That's serious. It's serious. This is how dangerous it is to be in a moralistic or legalistic church. A church that has reduced the message of the gospel to good works or what you do they have cut themselves off from Christ. They have deserted their God, even though they look nice and polished on the outside. They may have the name church on their building, but they are no church at all. Why? Why would it mean that we desert God if we accept anything added to our salvation? Because you would be deserting what God has ordained To bring us back to Him. You're telling Him, no, I want to do it my way, not your way. See, the good news begins with bad news. The bad news is that we are all sinners. Some preach that as if it's good news, but it's bad news. Because our sin, no matter how great or small, separates us from God and makes us liable to His wrath and judgment. And the only way that we can be brought back into a loving bond of fellowship with God is through the person and work of Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. Because the law tells us we can't, mainly because we are sinners. Paul said that they were deserting him who called them in the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a danger for all of us because we're all natural legalists. We want to contribute in some way to our salvation. We'll even say, the Lord saved me, but we'll qualify. But I chose him. Your choosing is just evidence of faith. But choosing him does not save you. He saves you. There's no cooperation here in salvation. He saves you. He alone saves you. Paul said to the Galatians that God called them In the grace of Christ, salvation is by God's grace alone, demerited favor. You can't earn or merit your salvation. Dead sinners, that is dead to spiritual things, dead sinners cannot make themselves alive. But the good news is, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, his entire person and work. God the Father sent Jesus Christ, His beloved Son, into the world to live a perfect life on our behalf, to die a perfect sacrifice for our sins, and He was raised and ascended to sit on His heavenly throne to seal our salvation. It is a completed work. We can't add anything to it. Then He sends His Holy Spirit to apply that work to us through the means of the preached Word of God. And all we do is receive and rest in Christ alone. We can't contribute to His work. We only receive it. That is what faith is. Faith is not a work. Faith is not something you do. Faith is passive. It's not active. We receive and rest in Christ. Faith is first and foremost something that is generated within us by the Holy Spirit. It is a gift of God, as Paul says. This is how our confession defines justifying faith. It says, Justifying faith is a saving grace which can only come from God, wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God, whereby He, being convinced of His sin and misery, and of the disability in Himself and all other creatures, to recover him out of his lost condition. Not only assents to the truth of the promise of the gospel. But receives and rests upon Christ and his righteousness. Therein held forth for pardon of sin. And for the accepting and accounting of his person righteous in the sight of God for salvation. Where do you see any work on our part in that definition? Nowhere. Nowhere we're completely passive. Anything else added to his saving grace is to depart from the gospel of Christ. This is what Paul is trying to communicate here. And thirdly, it would be to turn to a different gospel. Paul says, they are deserting him who called them in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, what does he mean by a different gospel? Is Paul saying that there are all these other different gospels out there that you can choose from? That you can go to whatever church you want, kind of like a candy store and choose whichever gospel tastes best for you? That there is a gospel tailored for each individual person? No. He qualifies that by saying not that there is another one. There is no other gospel. There's only one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So this different gospel is not just another legitimate option for Christians. It is a distorted gospel. It is a false gospel. It is no gospel at all. So you would be not only turning your back on God, but it is like you're creating your own God with your own message. It is to reject what God has said. Now, the gospel is another word for the good news. And we hear good news all the time. We hear good news about a good health report. We hear the good news of good grades in school. But the good news of the gospel here, the gospel of Jesus Christ, has to do with the destiny of your eternal soul. And the world offers many Gospels. But they are no Gospels at all. In every religion, there is an offer of a Gospel. But these are all false Gospels from false gods. It's all just bad news. They are all messages of salvation by works. Whether it is salvation by meditation, or salvation by liberating your own mind. How do you do that? I I have no idea. Or it's salvation by a strict routine or schedule. But it is not just out there in the world. False gospels can be found within the church. Remember, these were teachers who were among the Galatians. Believe it or not, there are Christians who believe today in churches that ethnic Jews will be saved because of their ethnicity. There are Christians who believe that Judaism is the same as Christianity. Now, Christianity is a fulfillment of Judaism, but it's not the same. If you don't accept the fulfillment, you are stuck in a false religion serving a false god. To say that Judaism is the same as Christianity is a denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it is a denial of the one true God in Christ. Liberal theology of the 19th and 20th century, remember where it started. It started within the church led by pious Bible-believing people. Uh, During his time in seminary, J. Gresson-Machin said that his liberal professors were more pious, and I put that in quotes, more pious and godly than conservatives, but they didn't believe the true gospel. See, it doesn't matter how pious you are, right? It's really not really piety, right? Because you're rejecting the gospel, and so you're rejecting the one true God, But it doesn't matter how pious you look. It doesn't matter how much you read the Bible. It's not enough to say, read your Bible. It's not about reading your Bible. It's about how you read the Bible. Are you reading the Bible the same way Paul read his Bible? It doesn't matter how much you pray. If you deny that one is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you are deserting and turning your back on God. All that work, all the reading of the Bible, all the praying, all the coming to church, that's all in vain. If you deny this gospel, if you turn to a different gospel, you're leaving the faith, even while you're sitting in the pews. These Judaizers, who were troubling the Galatian churches, didn't deny salvation by grace through faith in Christ. They denied salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Notice how subtle that is. What's wrong with adding circumcision to it? Let's cover all bases here. Let's make sure sure we have a backup plan, just in case. Isn't that our tendency? I know it's by grace, but, you know, just in case, let me, let me build up a good, you know, portfolio with all of my good works. Maybe this can contribute to it. But no. Uh, this is what happened with the mainline churches in America that went liberal. Liberal churches, didn't become liberal overnight. It was progressive. First, uh, they found the gospel in the Sermon on the Mount and the Golden Rule. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. But that's not the gospel. That's the law. Even Jesus said, that was the sum of the law in the prophets. Keeping the golden rule doesn't save you. The golden rule is just a description of what already saved people are expected to do. Because all Christians are expected to reflect the kingdom of God on earth. So then the centrality of the gospel began to shift to the side, and the focus of the church went in a different direction until the gospel was totally replaced with a man-made message. It became a different gospel. They went from the gospel of grace to a gospel of works. That is what liberalism is. The focus shifted from the gospel to sometimes good efforts. I'm not saying these are bad efforts. These are good things to be involved in. Uh, Efforts to end world hunger. Education reform, curing diseases, sustainable or green living, tolerance of other religions. And what would be missing in all of these messages was the gospel. An even sadder note is how the gospel is missing in even conservative evangelical churches today. Now, for some examples of this, uh, I'm going to quote a well-known writer and preacher. He wrote this in 2005. He said that uh, conservative evangelical churches were replacing the gospel with even good things and good causes. But even with a good cause we can change the gospel into a different message. We can replace the central message of the gospel with a passionate devotion to the pro-life cause, a drive toward church growth, a deep concern for the institution of the family, a sympathetic, empathetic, thickly honeyed cultivation of interpersonal relationships. Uh, That's just another way of saying becoming a church where you can make friends, a determination to take America back to its Christian roots through political power, a warm affirmation of self-esteem. This is what the evangelical church looked like in 2005. And tell me that this is not still relevant today. This is the danger of what Jeffrey Ventrella called the hyphenated church. We are the King James only church. We are the politically active church. We are the home is everything church. The home school pro procreation. If you have five kids or less per family, you don't belong here. Courtship church. So on and so forth. Until the gospel is lost in all these non-essential yet oftentimes good things. We can replace the centrality of the gospel with a good cause. And don't hear me saying, don't be part of good causes. I would be ridiculous to say that. But what's the point of these good causes if you lose the gospel? Because being involved in them doesn't save you. It doesn't save anyone. That's why the business of the church is not cultural transformation. Making the church about cultural transformation is falling for liberalism all over again. The business of the church is the proclamation of the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ alone to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. His business in his earthly ministry, was not to overthrow Rome or overthrow Caesar. His business was not to change Roman culture. Nor did he expect his disciples to do that. His business was to seek and to save the lost and to give his life as a ransom from many. He was determined and focused and he completed that work. And that is what the church proclaims. And that is what also builds the church. Because we must ask ourselves, what is the church's mission? Is the church's mission to build a society where everyone is moral while everyone is at the same time lost? Or are we about the message of the kingdom that has come and is coming? Because many of us think that the gospel is only good news for the beginning of the Christian life. And now after the Christian is saved, he just needs to be told what to do. This is how we often think of discipleship. This is how we often raise our kids. They already know about Jesus. We just need to tell them what to do. Disconnected from the gospel. I don't know about you, but I'm not perfect yet. And I need the gospel of Jesus Christ every day for my discipleship. Every hour, I need a heavenly mediator. We don't mature out of the gospel. An example would be Paul's letters. All of what Paul said, even in his moral imperatives, when he told us what to do, even when he gave us commands on how we should live, it was always tied back to Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. It was never disconnected from that. He never lost sight of the gospel in his life. And so the same it is for the Christian today. If the church loses the gospel to a different message, she is lost. All the while thinking she's okay. Why does she think she's okay? She sees a lot of change. The church is growing. She's doing good in the community. There's a lot of buzz out there. But if you lose the gospel, it doesn't matter what it looks like. You're lost. You're lost. You're blind by the God of this world. And those teaching such things will be held accountable. Lastly, Paul condemns the false teachers. And remember, if Paul condemns the false teachers, it is God condemning the false teachers because this is the very words of God here. And not only the false teachers, but anyone who preaches a different gospel. This is where you can say, wow, he's really angry here. He even includes himself when he says, but even if we, even if it were the apostles or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That's another word for let him be damned. You hear about people having immediate visions of angels or angels coming to visit them with a fresh word from God all the time. There are so-called Christian movies based on these visitations. Be careful. For even if Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, Paul is saying, even if the skies open up and an angel comes down and reveals something new to you about the gospel, Paul says, let that angel be accursed. It is not an angel. It's a demon disguised as one. That is what started Mormonism. An angel by the name of Moroni visits Joseph Smith and gives him new books which contains additions to the gospel. Islam started when an angel who visited Muhammad and revealed to him the Quran. And in that Quran there's a denial of the gospel. If there's a denial of the gospel, then there is a denial of our one true God. People think that a visit from an angel justifies their teaching or strengthens their teaching, but not for Paul. Paul says, I don't care if it's an angel. If any creature, even a heavenly one, distorts or adds to this gospel that was preached to you, let him be accursed. This is where Paul draws a dividing line between the apostolic preaching of the gospel and all the false religions that would come afterwards or even during his time. He even repeats himself. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel, Contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. What was the gospel that they received? Paul is speaking of what the Corinthians received in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That is the gospel that the Galatians received until men distorted it. So we should ask ourselves, In what ways in our daily lives do we distort the gospel? We're not all teachers, and I understand that. But what we believe about the gospel and our salvation matters. He expected the lay people, not just the pastors, not just the teachers, to know the true doctrine of the gospel, defend that doctrine. He expected them to know... The gospel, believe the gospel, and be able to defend the gospel. He wrote the letter to the Galatian churches, to the people of God, not just to the pastors, not just to the elders, because everyone will be held accountable for what he or she believes. Everyone will be held accountable to their doctrine. Listen to how serious it was for Paul. So we should ask ourselves, Are we trusting in our own obedience? Are we trusting in our own good works rather than trusting in Christ alone for our salvation? If we are trusting in our own good works, then we haven't analyzed how good our good works truly are. The writers of the Confession of Faith knew this all too well when they wrote that we cannot by our best works merit pardon of sin, Or eternal life at the hand of God. By reason of the great disproportion that is between them. That is the works and the glory to come. And the infinite distance that is between us and God. And since our good works come from us. They are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection. That they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. So what they're saying here is the only reason God accepts our good works is because of what Christ has done for us. It is because we are forgiven in Christ and because he has given us his spirit to do at least something good. So even our good works need the work of Christ on the cross to cover them with his blood because they are imperfect and sinful. So I would say if you have realized that you are lost and dead in sin, or if you are discouraged with your walk with Christ, look to Christ alone for your salvation and for your growth in grace, for your sanctification. Don't look to your own good works Don't believe the false gospels that tell you that you can save yourself by what you do. Jesus Christ has done what we could never do for ourselves. He is the only good news we need to hear every week, every day, every hour, every minute, every second. Amen.